I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers and other things. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no story ever left fully finished. This is Encounter 607, Odds and Ends. In every episode of The Saucer Life, there are parts of the story that I don't have time to get to, forget to talk about, or honestly just didn't know about until after the show went out. So today, I'm going to take some time to revisit some topics where, after I talked about them, I realized I should have talked a bit more, or about something a bit different. Don't worry, you don't have to have listened to these episodes to understand. In fact, let this be a guide to what you should check out that you might have missed in the archives over at SaucerLife.com. We'll start with Bill Cooper. I know, I know, some of you are groaning, some of you are reaching for the stop button right now, but Bill Cooper, who we met a few times, most recently in Encounter 501. Now, this is a bit of a departure, because there aren't any flying saucers involved here, but as you know from Encounter 501, Bill got out of the flying saucer business once everybody realized what a liar he was, and went into... I was going to say went into the the right-wing extremism and uh, and m- militia business. But then I thought that sounded kind of dismissive. And then I thought, no, that's pretty much what he did. But I wanted to share with you, and it didn't really fit in the episode, uh, but I wanted to share with you what I believe to be the dumbest idea Bill Cooper ever had. That is a tall order, but I think I've found it. I've been re-listening to way too many episodes lately of The Hour of the Time, his old 1990s shortwave program. It's good background noise for writing. And sadly, now you have to suffer for it. Now, this may not be the dumbest thing he ever said or the dumbest idea he ever had, but I'm pretty sure it's the dumbest idea he ever had that I haven't been immediately able to credit to someone else else having had it first. Our Billy was big on appropriating other ideas, you'll remember, or find if you haven't heard the episode yet. Now, this idea of Bill's emerged in late 1993, and Bill was angry about what he perceived as a liberal bias in the mainstream media. And Cooper hit on an idea to solve this. He scoured the Wall Street Journal, and he described this process on on the hour of the time. And actually, some episodes, he would read 15-minute chunks from shareholder reports. He scoured every news source he could find for low-stock-priced media companies. And he hit on Gannett, which during the 1990s was buying up local papers all over the country and was finally turning a profit on USA Today. And Cooper, somehow, from how he read things, figured that if one shareholder controlled about 15% of the total shares... They would have enough power in shareholders' meetings through their votes to dictate how Gannett covered the Gannett. I think it's Gannett covered the news. So his plan was for listeners to go out and buy as many shares of of Gannett stock as they could. At, At the time, it was about fifty bucks a share. Once people have all their paperwork for the Gannett stock, they were to go to a notary and and sign over their proxy writing 
pro- sorry, proxy voting rights to Bill Cooper, who... <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. I may edit out that laughter, but I might not. Bill Cooper would then go to the the shareholders meetings scheduled for May of 1994 with everybody's proxy voting rights in hand and, and then change the direction of the media in the United States. The only catch besides the whole idea was that his listeners were not apparently interested in buying Gannett stock. In a January 1994 episode, like five months before, four months actually, before the big shareholders meeting, uh, Bill spent the entire hour, minus five minutes to try to get people to buy gold from his sponsor, haranguing the audience for not being in line with his orders to buy Gannett's stock and send him their voting proxy rights. It may go without saying, but I don't think Cooper ever pulled this off. And, And after about March of 1994, I don't think you hear him mention it again. No flying saucers, but uh, that was a story I wished that I would have had time to fit into uh, into the episode. Of possible interest connected to this is a new book that I just, uh, I just received today, haven't had a chance to read it yet, entitled Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy, and the Fall of Trust in America by Mike Jacobson. Jacobson is, according to his bio, a writer, quote, known for his explorations of the seamy side of urban life and for his offbeat and witty take on popular culture. I confidently predict that I will have some harsh criticisms of the book. So, you know, you have that to look forward to down the road because I, Bill Cooper, I can't quit you. That's all there is to it. Okay, next. In Encounter 206, we looked at the FBI's interest in the Detroit Saucer Club, particularly a woman named Laura Mundo or Laura Markser, as she was known at the time. Since that episode was produced, I've acquired Mundo's 1982 book, The Mundo UFO Report. Sadly, I've not yet gotten my hands on her first book, Flying Saucers and the Father's Plan, published by Gray Barker's Saucerian Books. The book, and I gotta say, my copy is signed by someone who wrote Laura Mundo in cursive on the inside cover. I don't know if it was her, but it was signed by somebody, so that's close. The book is is based on columns Laura wrote for the Broadsider newspaper, which was based in Northville, Michigan. Now, contrary to what you might think, Northville is not in the northern part of Michigan. It's a suburb of Detroit, but it's slightly north and a ways west of Detroit, so I will graciously allow them to keep the name Northville, Michigan. They're welcome. So the book opens with some photos before there's any sort of writing at all, photos. And what I love about it is that it goes from pictures of Laura hanging out with Desmond Leslie, uh, who wrote the book Flying Saucers Have Landed, where George Adamski's flying saucer encounter first appeared, and then group shots of Laura and her Detroit flying saucer pals, and then abruptly moves to classic UFO photos like the the UFO um Take this photo taken in McMinnville, Oregon, for example, if you're familiar with that one. It's fun. Uh, there's also a set of diagrams about how she views the metaphysical universe. This is all before you read anything at all. And then once the words finally start, there's a foreword from a sociologist at Eastern Michigan University. And he says this, which I find interesting. For social scientists, the neglect of the flying saucer phenomenon is particularly reprehensible. While the particulars of the controversy are very much open to debate, the flying saucer social movement is important social history. Thousands of people have been involved. Ufology has become a popular pastime, 
and for many, a consuming passion. The new student of the literature is overwhelmed by the extent to which the flying saucers have become popular culture. There is so much to sort out that I suspect the important questions have yet to be asked. I have to agree with every word of that. Well done, Professor David Stuppel of the Department of Sociology at Eastern Michigan University, who wrote this five years before the book was published in 1975. Another thing Dr. Stuppel says, and I, I love this, it's, it's just the most polite thing ever that he has to say about Laura. And I, uh, I hope someday to have a reason to, to say something like this in this exact way, because it's so, it's so kind but, but truthful. Although I do not endorse her metaphysics, I do not discount her as a person. Despite your wacky and unsupportable ideas, I will continue to acknowledge that you are in fact a human being. Laura's author note gives us an idea of the, the wacky yet slightly boring nature of what was to come. I have studied much of the relevant current data and my writings will attempt to correlate psychology, physics, and other sciences in relation to my original concept of living atomic energy being as one unit of which we are a part, than to the UFOs, which they do not do as yet. I am not a doctor of medicine, physics, or theology, but I have studied the sciences extensively enough to relate them to my original concept of living atomic energy being, which I shall attempt to do in this book, confirmed face-to-face -to, -face to me by the visiting space people. There's also a great account of how the space people gave her the courage to continue promoting George Adamski's lecture in Detroit back in 1954. In February 1954, when I was trying to promote George Adamski's first lecture in Detroit, I was met only with opposition and ridicule. One night I was awakened about 2 o'clock when the light in my bedroom ceiling went on. The bulb had burnt out months before. A saucer, whose electric dynamo I could hear humming just above, was apparently sending a beam of warm, protonic energy to me. Negative electrons create cold, present in supernatural experiences, so-called, but are really subnatural, are from infrared frequencies rather than ultra-blue. My body felt as though I was standing naked outdoors in the snow with golden sunshine being poured over me. I felt at one consciously with all the living atomic energy being of as the universe as though I knew everything for a few seconds that it probably lasted. I have been raised to the prime atomic state. The next day I had tremendous energies with my invisible electronic positronic outer force field apparently expanded. I went about continuing to promote Adamski's Detroit lecture with no difficulties this time. One final thing about this book that I, I just love so much, aside from the horrifically hot pink dust jacket with strange drawings of a, a, a flying saucer abducting Laura Mundo from a, presumably, you know, Michigan. But uh, the, the flying saucer, you can see this on the, the graphic that accompanies this podcast episode on the website. It, uh, it says Venus across the side with the, the traditional feminal, fem, feminal, feminine symbol of the circle with the, the sort of crossed lines underneath it. So it's a lady saucer? I don't know. My favorite thing is the, the person I bought this from on Etsy, I want to say it was, included a note card that uh, sort of a three by five index card on which was typed a series of notes, words, random phrases, ideas, uh, a name and an address, which I'm not going to share 
for uh, for obvious reasons, but I may have mentioned this note card before because it, it seems like I would have, but uh, it's it's cool enough to revisit from time to time. Invited, not convert. 1947, Kenneth Arnold. 1954, Adamski to Detroit. Adamski, Leslie, how many seen? Air Force, Harden, mail groups, organizations to help those interest to do their own investigating, book jackets, UFO picture, Forrestal, Kehoe, NICAP, Michigan, Fed, Farley, article, magazines, newspaper clippings, Science, Crystal, Lee Forrest, non-psychic, L.A., hole in the ground. Foundation Membership Plan. Register. What they have said. Reason for coming. Bombing. Shift in magnetic poles. Consciously evolved to where they can come in, but not until the time is right. Outlaw war. Or blow ourselves to pieces so badly all will want peace. Do they believe in God? Question. Remember a time before digital things when... The notes you were taking were limited by the physical object on which you had at hand to take notes on. It sounds like a, a strange piece of stream of consciousness, but I think what it really is 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 a bunch of notes with empty space between them conceptually because the person taking the notes knew what they meant. I have notes like that, but it's so fun to see something like that, this, this artifact from some Detroit area, presumably UFO, believer from back in the day. In our last episode, we discussed the work of Credo Mutua, and we touched on the notion of native or indigenous beliefs being intertwined with belief in the paranormal and paranormal experiences. There were a few more things I wanted to mention, so here we go. Or rather, there were a couple of interesting things written by scholars that were very much in the vein of our discussion last week that I wanted to share with you. The first is from Christopher F. Roth, a sociocultural anthropologist, and Roth wrote an essay entitled Ufology as Anthropology in Deborah Battaglia's 2005 edited volume E.T. Culture, Anthropology in Outer Spaces. Roth addresses ufological connections and the use of Native American imagery and cachet, particularly in the realm of the ancient aliens genre. Like the Book of Mormon a century earlier, or the Mew historiography of James Churchward, George Hunt Williamson's work draws the New World into a sacred Old World geography and history while retaining a broadly theosophical model. This recentering of world history toward the Americas was a necessary stage in the transplanting of occult racial concepts into the new American soil. This was echoed later in the resurgence of the ancient astronauts spurred by Chariots of the Gods, arguably the most popular UFO book ever. An easy criticism of Danikin's view of history is that it sees Indians as effectively extinct and looks only to their ancient monuments, not their living cultures, for evidence of a civilization high enough to require hypothesizing alien invention. But in this way, Amerindian archaeology becomes, in quotes, our past, the heritage of all Americans, including European Americans. This privileged role of the American Indian among the world's tribal peoples as the seeding ground for a European-based New World civilization is then explicitly a genetic model, metaphoric in mainstream culture, but real for white New Age and secular liberal discourses that valorize any Native American ancestry, no matter how remote. 
And that's an important point, that among what other things that Roth said, the, the, the tendency within UFO and paranormal circles to address, to address a non-native interpretation of native ideas sort of in isolation to the particular time where this particular book or document was found without taking into account how those beliefs and ideas might have changed up through the present since these cultures still exist um, is, is an important thing to consider. And it's, uh, it's an idea shared um, in some ways by Philip J. Deloria, who currently teaches in the history department at Harvard. He discussed similar issues in his 1998 book, Playing Indian. Playing Indian does not include the standard wordy academic subtitle, but the blurb on the back cover should give you an idea of Deloria's argument. He says, quote, Moving from the Boston Tea Party to the present, this provocative book explores the ways non-Indian Americans have acted out their fantasies about Indians in order to experience national, modern, and personal identities. In this complicated tug-of-war between imaginings and actions, Indian people have been embraced and rejected, frequently humiliated, and occasionally empowered. The historical anxieties revealed by playing Indian continue to haunt Americans, both Indian and non-Indian, to this day. So in a chapter not about um, UFOs, but entitled Counterculture Indians in the New Age, Deloria discusses the way in which actual Native Americans were, in some ways, almost surplus to the needs of those who sought to embrace what they saw as the spiritual aspects of Native American culture. Like its counterparts in communalism, politics, and environmentalism, the New Age brand of countercultural spiritualism rarely engaged real Indians, for it was not only unnecessary, but inconvenient to do so. While many traveled to Harney Peak and Bear Butte, holy places named in Indian books, they rarely engaged the Lakota or Cheyenne people who also visited these places. Even in a quest for fixed meaning, Indian people were basically irrelevant. Indianness, even when imagined as something essential, could be captured and marketed as a text, largely divorced from Indian oversight and questions of authorship. No flying saucers in sight, but an echo of what I said in the Credo Mutwa story. Deloria's description here could be applied to some who have appropriated Native American imagery, as well as a wide array of archaeological or artistic creations, for the purposes of pursuing an alien agenda of some kind. Both of these books are worth checking out if you're interested in history and anthropology, and links to get them on Amazon are in the show notes, or, my recommendation, rely on your local library and interlibrary loan. And actually, what Deloria said there about, um, about Indianness and authenticity and authorship and that issue of abandoning those things because you can simply buy a book that, you know, talks about the stuff without, you know, maybe being connected to the people it got the ideas from. I think one of the things that made and continues to make Credo was so significant in, um, in not just his alien discussions, but in all aspects of African culture that he talks about is that he carries a very non-Western sense of authenticity with him. We discussed how different uh, scholars have talked about how, you know, sort of the uses of that authenticity over the years. But we'll leave that there because, um, because there, there's something coming up that's less stinky and more fun. In Encounter 503, Little Gray Men, we met Richard Boylan. Now, in that episode, we discussed his conclusions about alien abduction, 
Basically, his view was that aliens were great, and if anyone had negative experiences with aliens, it probably wasn't aliens, but rather military or intelligence officials conducting operations to frame the aliens and paint them in a bad light. I think I mentioned this. I can't imagine that I wouldn't have, but I don't have time to go back and re-listen to everything. But in 1995, Boylan lost his counseling and therapy licenses. I say lost, like they fell down the back of the couch and he couldn't find them. But, but what I mean is the state of California took them away because he was violating ethical standards, including engaging in hot tub therapy sessions with patients. Now, I've done some research, talked to some people, and I understand this is not the done thing in the world of psychology. So if you're seeing a therapist and they want you to get in a hot tub with them, call the state of California or something and get their license taken away. So, without the means to continue first-hand research into the abduction phenomenon, Boylan became increasingly focused on conspiratorial aspects of the phenomenon and constructed or appropriated an elaborate political cosmology very similar to the Ashtar Command deal, interplanetary diplomacy, friendly aliens protecting the Earth, with various factions on Earth either supporting or opposing the aliens who were here to bring us into the Galactic Federation, or whatever. So back in 2000, uh, on the Alt-Alien Alt Alien Visitors Usenet group, which we also have an episode about, about I think, um, somewhere, uh, somebody posted a, uh, an email from, from Dr. Boylan to his mailing list uh, with the subject, Latest Briefing from, the, from High-Level National Security Informant. And the, the person submitting this, this briefing sums up, I mean, this is the, the most bland introduction to a person ever. Dr. Boylan is a UFO investigator who some people like, but others don't. Here it is. And if, if you hear some stumbling over words, it's because in order to defeat the evil forces of the anti-alien cabal, Boylan decided that uh, if, if snooping services like uh, and, and, and tools like Echelon or whatever were monitoring internet communications, he could foil them by leaving letters out of words that might trigger um, some sort of surveillance. So nearly every word that's not a pronoun or a conjunction has a letter of some sort missing in order to fool the bad guys into not noticing his email. He's paranoid enough to do that, but apparently not paranoid enough to know that they're already watching all of us all the time. Here is Richard Boylan and his meeting with Z, or Zed, if that's the type of person you are. He emerged from his vehicle in the parking lot of a fancy hotel near the shoreline, attired in casual dress clothes with sunglasses, thrust out his hand and said, Hi, I'm Z. With that... I met face-to-face -face with one of the highest-level informants in the U.S. National Security Network. What follows are extracts from our three-hours-long conversation. Z was deeply concerned about current events in the Middle East. He said the national security community considers that the place where soon war could break out, which would engulf not only the Middle East, drawing in not only Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and possibly Egypt, Turkey, and Iran, but also draw in larger, powerful states such as India and Russia. Then, with India's attention diverted, China could march into areas of India it considers within its sphere of influence. The Western powers would have to respond, and global war would become a reality. He said that the intelligence community expects a major terrorist strike within the United States this winter, 
most likely a biological warfare agent dispersed across a city of note, or even a nuclear weapon detonated. He noted grimly that 18 Soviet nuclear warheads have gone missing and are most likely in terrorist hands now. He considered anthrax the most likely biowarfare agent to be used, but allowed as that there are other killer microbes available to the terrorists also. He said terrorist groups are within the U.S. now. Z stated that the U.S. is quietly on ThreatCon Delta, the equivalent of the Pentagon's wartime DEFCON 4 alert. ThreatCon Delta is the highest level of civilian alert condition, because biological or nuclear incidents are considered likely to occur at any time now. Because of ThreatCon Delta, classified sections of the National Security Act and secret presidential national security directives have become activated. Did you know, Z asked me, that the president is not in charge now? FEMA is. I replied that this is unconstitutional. Z replied that the classified laws and national security directives make it legal. We discussed the various huge underground city-like installations that are all stocked and staffed and prepared to take in a certain portion of the population in the event of a disaster or terrorist strike happening. Such installations include one under the Kansas City Stadium, with the capacity to take care of one million selected persons. Many such installations exist and are ready to go. There is also a shadow government, Z told me with substitute president, vice president, cabinet officers, heads of Senate and Congress, Supreme Court justices, and other top governmental officials ready to function if disaster strikes topside. Thus, he confirmed earlier leaked reports about a secret continuity of government plan. He also confirmed that the Rex exercised authorized by President Reagan was a dry-run dress rehearsal of the taking over of command of the government, legislature, and courts by the unelected shadow government, implemented, if necessary, by federalized FEMA troops. Z then got down to more exotic areas of mutual interest. He confirmed the previously anecdotal story about President Nixon's having, having taken then-famous television star Jackie Gleason to Homestead Air Force Base and showed him the corpses of Zeta Reticulin Gray Crewman retrieved from a UFO crash. Z said that he, too, had viewed those bodies. He indicated that the Bilderberg Council, a transnational elite world policy planning group comprised of heads of some governments and multinational corporations, interacts with The Nine, a group of extraterrestrial representatives from a council of coordination for many cosmic super-civilizations in contact with Earth. Phyllis Schlemmer spoke of this in her classic book, The Only Planet of Choice. Schlemmer herself occasionally is a channel for The Nine. Z also confirmed what Black Project's defense industry insider Edgar Rothschild wrote in his recent book, Alien Rapture. The existence of the T-3B, a large triangular anti-gravity craft within the U.S. anti-gravity fleet. Here is what Z had to say about the R-3B triangular anti-gravity craft. T-3B, man, this is the code name for what everybody on Earth has seen. Maybe not everybody. I haven't seen it. It is a very large, triangular-shaped re-entry vehicle with anti-gravity. It's what the November issue of Popular Mechanics identified as the lenticular re-entry vehicle, man. A nuclear-powered flying saucer, the first version of which went operational in 1962. It was used in the Gulf War with electromagnetic pulse laser cannons. It literally sat mid-air, firing long, medium, and short-range to take out antennas, towers, communications, air traffic control, TV dishes, whatever. 
For three hours, these three triangles just sat there, blowing up everything in sight. Then the stealth fighters had fun for the rest of the day into the early evening. The R-3B has been in testing since the 60s, but it has only been perfected for the last eight years, since about 1992. It's a good remake of what Truman first saw in Roswell, the semicircular craft. It's compartmentalized, built by the Skunk Works, whatever, and Boeing. Housed in Utah. Remember Utah? C was reminding me of his earlier revelation that the U.S. Space Command has located its prime headquarters, an anti-gravity space launch fleet facility, beneath the tallest mountain in the Wasak Range, east of Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, that's the end of that story. This is what people have seen, right? What I could safely estimate more than 90% of the times. The other 10%, what you seek is the real, the extraterrestrial UFO stuff. I politely disagreed with Z's estimate, since I doubted that the U.S. anti-gravity fleet was numerous enough to account for the hundreds of daily sightings, but I thanked him for all his information, and for so graciously driving a distance to rendezvous with me. I certainly hope that the destructive incidents that the current ThreatCon Delta alert is for do not happen, but I also believe that the American public has a right to know what I have learned. Thus, you have this report. Richard Boylan, Ph.D., LLC. If you're familiar with 1990s conspiracy culture, you will recognize about 90% of what you just heard. The references to FEMA taking over, the invocation of the Rex exercise, referring to Rex or Readiness Exercise 84. There's the Bilderbergs. Uh, There's references to a book also called The Only Planet of Choice and a group called The Nine. We're going to be speaking in more depth about The Nine down the road. But what I love about this is is the idea that, that... Boylan is gullible and was not really well-versed in the conspiracy culture of the 1990s. Otherwise, he would have sort of seen this as as the, the, the sort of greatest hits collection of conspiracy theories that it was. But Boylan was doing his alien stuff in the 90s, his abduction stuff, so probably wasn't paying attention to this other stuff. And I, I just love the idea of some guy, some guy trolling... Richard Boylan and saying, I'll be wearing a boutonniere that's a giant carnation. Meet me by the duck pond and I will tell you everything I know about threat level Delta. And just rattling off a bunch of stuff that he read on the internet. It's it's great. I don't recommend you do it in real life because, you know, a crazy person might stab you. But, you know, trolling was more fun when you had to actually go to a park and pretend to be a spy to do it. Not that I ever did anything like that. Our last, uh, our last thing, our last bit of catch up is a man in black story from the guy who, if he didn't come up with the men in black, he certainly made them into what we presume them to be in many ways. And that's Gray Barker. Gray Barker wrote a book about the collapse of the silver bridge between West Virginia and Ohio uh, that happened in the late sixties. You may know this incident better as the Mothman complex of things going on. John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, became sort of the standard text about the Mothman thing. But Gray Barker's book, The Silver Bridge, was written in 1970, five years before The Mothman Prophecies. It was written by a man, Barker, who was, uh, if not a native of Point Pleasant, was a West Virginia man and, and knew the area, knew the people. And it is a better book about that particular Mothman event, although Keel's book is one of my favorites. But this is a Man in Black story about a figure named Agar. 
Donning dark glasses and relaxing the severe manner, he knocked politely at a door and was quickly admitted when he told the woman he had come to ask her about the flying saucer she had seen. She was overjoyed, and for an hour he suffered her oral aggression. But this was one of the unpleasant facets of his work, which he must put up with. Pretending to listen to the lengthy details of her sighting and politely asking a leading question here and there when he could interrupt the monologue, he could sense the woman was near the end of her seemingly interminable narrative. It was time to act now, before she could continue by switching to occult subjects of some kind. He withdrew a bundle of forms from his attaché case and began writing things down, while looking about the room as if listing the furniture. Now, ignoring the hostess, he arose, walked to the TV set, closely examined the controls, and then wheeled it around and copied the serial number from its back. The woman, now obviously nervous, stopped her talking when she observed his actions. He then asked her a series of unrelated questions. Does your house have a steel framework? Has anyone else visited you in regard to this sighting? Has your husband ever had a security check? Do you consider yourself a loyal citizen? Did you vote Democratic or Republican in the last election? Have you ever felt your telephone was tapped? Have you told your neighbors about the sighting? Did you notice a shield-like symbol on the flying object? Has anyone in your family ever been arrested? As she attempted to answer each question, she became visibly more frightened and confused. Then, upon his request, she quickly agreed to stop talking about the sighting to any other person, not even her husband. Of course, she would spread the story widely throughout the community. This is just a small bit of uh, an extended sequence about the Men in Black that is part of the Silver Bridge, and that will cover when we talk about the Silver Bridge and Mothman in depth down the road. Yes, we are going to do a Mothman episode. Actually, we're... Oh, I just talked myself into a, a Mothman a Mothman series um, of episodes. So thanks, Gray Barker. You did it again. What I love about this, though, is that you've got some great Man in Black stories in Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, but they're very much uh, sort of journalistic and, and reporting-based sort of reporting-based writing. That's that's good talking stuff there, Gullius. Good job. What we see in Gray Barker's Silver Bridge, and, and really in all of, of Barker's books, I think, is that he takes a more novelistic, creative, nonfiction approaching, it's probably fiction because it's Gray Barker, kind of approach, and it's, it's more fun to read. You come away with it with a sense you read some really good writing, even if you don't really know any more about what happened in a particular situation. All right. Um, if you tuned in to this episode thinking you were getting the last part of our globetrotting adventures where we covered East Asia, don't worry. We will we will get to East Asia at some point. Don't worry. But from here, uh, before we get to East Asia, I'm not sure. It might be fun. I, I'm sort of thinking as I'm recording what the next episode episode should be, and I have it. Next time, Bigfoot from space. How about that? Bigfoot from space. You can explore the archives of the show at saucerlife.com. You can check out any of the episodes that we referred to today. And you can uh, follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. The Saucer Life Encounter 607 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. It featured Roberta Evangeline Straith as the voice of Laura Mundo. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life everywhere you find podcasts. And ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated. And we thank those of you who have left reviews. Um, some of you have said very, very kind things. And uh, I, I continue 
just honestly, I continue to be amazed that uh, that my little my little podcast here about flying saucer goofiness has um, has been received so well. So thank you very much. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. You see, I'm going to force you to save this nation. I'm going to force you to do it because you won't do it without somebody making you do it. And I don't care if you hate my guts. I love my country enough to be the most hated man in the world if I have to, to save the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's all right with me that the children of this country can have a good, honest, secure future in a world with moral values and family values where they can worship at the altar of their choice. I don't care if every damn one of you hate my guts, but you're going to do this. You're going to do it. You're going to do it or you're going to hang your head in shame because every single time you see something on television or in the newspapers or hear it on the radio that is taking this country down the tubes, you're going to know that it is your fault.